I'm going to ask you to take your Bible to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, and uh, as you turn there, we're going to look at a paragraph this morning, and my prayer is that this paragraph will not just be informative. Oftentimes, we come to a passage of Scripture, and we get a lot of information about uh, what the Spirit of God has written for our good and for His glory, but I'm actually praying this morning that the word we read this morning and the word that we study together this morning will strengthen us, will encourage us, and will embolden us as we strive to live out our faith in a very significant time. And maybe the best way uh, to stress for you the importance of the words that are before us, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3 and going all the way down to the end of verse 5, is to tell you a story. Some of you may be familiar with this story, but it actually happened um, some 60 years ago uh, in, in, uh, in 1960 as two men sat across a table over a cup of coffee. You know, it's amazing what that kind of a meeting can do. Uh, your life may be changed, the direction of your life may be changed by a single meeting in your life. I I know that that's happened in my life a time or two, and those of you that are a little further down the road in your career or in your vocation know the power of an unexpected meeting. And this meeting took place in 1960, and the two men that were having coffee that day were about to engage in a conversation that was going to change the direction of both of their lives. One of those men was a partner in a publishing house that many of you are aware of. His name was Bennett Cerf. Bennett Cerf was actually one of the founding partners in this publishing house. And if you've ever bought a book uh, for a a class that you're taking or, or in some academic area, you may be familiar with this publishing house today. It's called Random House Publishers. And Bennett Cerf in 1960 was one of the founding partners. The guy across the table was in his mid-50s. His name was Theodore Geisler. Anybody know who Theodore Geisler is? Anybody heard that name? Some of you are like, that sounds really familiar, but I can't place it. Uh, Theodore Geisler was in his mid-50s, and he was a writer. And uh, Bennett Cerf was, was actually challenging him. They had a friendly wager, which is kind of a Christian way, word for bet. They had a friendly bet. <laughs> And, uh, and the bet was that, that Geisler could not write a children's book using only 50 vocabulary words. And just to make it interesting, the word the and the word ah, as it occurred in the book, had to count as one of those vocabulary words. And since uh, Surf was just swimming in dough, he's, he agreed to pay a dollar a word if, if Bennett or if uh, Geisler won the bet. And so they had their coffee, and they went their way. And, uh, and Geisler came back, and he actually accomplished the goal. He wrote a children's book. And that children's book went on to sell over 200 million copies worldwide. It was one of the best-selling children's book ever. It catapulted Random House into, strat- into the stratosphere of children's educational publishing, and it made Theodore Geisler immensely wealthy and, and literally a household name. And I have had a love-hate relationship with this book my entire life. Because my name is Sam. 
And you know this book, right? I mean, as soon as I said that, you know this book. Sam, you know this book, right? I mean, I would say I can't tell you if I had a dollar for every time somebody asked me, do you like, can you, re- can you finish that? Green eggs and ham, I'd be a wealthy man. And the answer to that question is no. I don't like green eggs and ham. Uh, it's just an amazing story. And now you know who Theodore Geisler is. He, and I, he's Dr. Seuss. And I'm not in any way suggesting or, or supporting his social views or anything else. I'm just making the observation that, that here's a man who took 50 words and changed the direction of his life. You say, what in the world? That's a great story, but what in the world does it have uh, to do with the text in front of us? Well, the answer is that when the Apostle Paul wrote these verses, he used 47 words in the original language. If you could read this in the language that Paul wrote it, if you could pull out a Greek New Testament today and read this, you would be reading 47 words. And my suggestion to you is that these 47 words have the ability to do something far deeper and far more impacting and have far greater eternal significance in your life and in the life of those around you than the 50 words that Dr. Seuss used when he wrote Green Eggs and Ham and went on to launch his own career and, uh, and make an immense amount of money for Random House. I would suggest to you these 47 words have the ability to change your life. So let's read them together. And then we recognize that the only way these words have the ability to change our life is if the Spirit of God takes these words and applies them to our hearts so that we see what is really there, not just what we think is there. So let's pray together after we read these words. Let's read together, beginning in verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. And that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. He will establish you and guard you against the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. May the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we come together this morning and as we think of the immensity of uh, these verses and the fact that you inspired them, they are authoritative. They govern how we think and how we live. They are inerrant. They are true words. They tell the truth about life, and they tell the truth about our life as you have designed it. And they are sufficient words. Lord, they're, they're capable of directing and shaping and strengthening our lives so that, Lord, we can do your will on earth as it is being done in heaven, and your name can be exalted and your kingdom can be extended. So, Lord, these words for us are more than just words on a page. They are food for us. And so we thank you for them, and we ask that you would help us to embrace them. In Jesus' name, amen. When you get to chapter 3, This is the final segment of the second letter that Paul wrote to a group of believers that was incredibly dear to him. You know the story of how the Apostle Paul 
on his missionary journey to Macedonia, started out in Philippi, and then from Philippi went to Berea, and then from Berea came to the city of Thessalonica. I've actually been over there on a study tour, uh, actually many times, uh, and today that city is called uh, Salonica. And so as you come into this city, uh, you, you see very little reminder of what was there when Paul was there. But in Paul's day, this was a thriving city that was filled with the ideology and the idolatry of, of the world of that day. I mean, you, you've, you've studied Greek and Roman history, and you know the religious ideology. And so into the middle of this city comes the Apostle Paul with a small band of believers, and he unleashes the gospel. I mean, when you go back to chapter 1 of 1 Thessalonians and you read how Paul came and just opened up his mouth and unleashed the gospel and what God began to do through the simple reality, the logos, the message from God about God, it was an amazing thing. And by the time you get to the very end of chapter 1, this city has been transformed by a group of people who have completely reversed their thinking. They have repented. That's the idea of turn. They have turned away from all of the idolatry of the day to serve, to worship the true and the living God. And they are confidently expecting, that's the idea behind waiting. They are confidently expecting, they are living in the reality that one day his son Jesus is coming again. Now that sounds a lot like most of us. We have turned away from the ideologies of the day to worship, to serve the true and the living God, and you are convinced of that. And what is the hope, what is the longing of your heart that one day his son would what? Return. So Paul writes 1 Thessalonians to those believers, and then uh, a few months later, he writes 2 Thessalonians to them. And what's interesting about 2 Thessalonians in the first two chapters, there are three prayers that Paul prays before he gets to the fourth and final prayer that we're studying. Let's, Let's look at those prayers quickly so that we have them in our mind because they set the context for the fourth prayer that we are reading and looking at today. The first prayer is in chapter 1. Notice how Paul talks about this in verse 3. Paul says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for another is increasing. Paul prays, for their growing faith and abounding love. Now think about this for a minute. How unique is it to find a Jewish rabbi praying for former pagan idolaters? Let me put those two ideas together, and the question you have in your mind is, how in the world did that ever happen? I mean, if you know anything about Jewish rabbinical thinking, the last thing a Jewish rabbi would be thankful for is what? a pagan Gentile idolater. And you can go back into rabbinic studies and, and read things that you talk, you know, you just sit there and say, how could, how could one image bearer think like this about another image bearer? One of the most shocking things I read uh, as I was preparing for this was a Jewish rabbi 
explaining why there were so many Gentiles in the world. And the answer he gave was because God needs a lot of fuel for the eternal fires of hell. That's stunning, isn't it? And here is a rabbi of the rabbis, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, studied under one of the most famous rabbis in Second Temple Judaism. And he's looking at a group of former pagan idolaters, and he is saying to them, I am thankful for you. I'm thankful for you. And it is right for me to think this way. You are my brothers. How in the world did this happen? And there's only one answer. It's the gospel. The gospel is what unifies. Why are you in this room? How did you get here? I mean, if we could tell our stories, if everybody could tell each other's stories, you would be astonished at the significant chasms of difference that are in this room, where you came from, how you were raised, what you, what you did, what sports team you, you followed. Uh, all of these things, what political party you're a part of, all of these things as you sit around in a room like this and you look at all of that and then you come together and there is this immediate unity. There is this deep unity. What was the foundation of that unity? And the answer is the gospel of Jesus Christ is what brought us together. And the truth of God's word is now what binds us together. So Paul begins this prayer with deep thankfulness. And then notice that there is a second prayer that Paul mentions, and that prayer begins in chapter 2. Verse 13, Paul says, We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. First fruits there. What, what does that imply? There's more. There's more to come. Through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. First Thessalonians is the letter he's talking about, right? So you can see how the gospel and then the word, the, the authoritative apostolic teaching comes together. That's why... You are here this morning because you have found a place where the apostolic teaching is regularly unfolded so that the gospel you embraced is now developed in you along a certain line through the authoritative teaching of God's word. And that's exactly what Paul was doing here with these believers. And then right in the middle of those two prayers is this prayer in verse 11 of chapter 1. To this end, we always pray for you. There is an intentional praying that is going on here that our God may make you worthy of your calling, of his calling of you, and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by his power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. There is an entire message there in that one prayer. I mean, you could take every one of these prayers and they could become independent messages that speak to us about how we ought to pray for ourselves and how we ought to pray for one another. And maybe we can do that at another time. But let's go to the final prayer that's in chapter 3. And I want you to see how the Apostle Paul now looks at these believers and he says to them, when you pray, pray for us. 
I've been praying for you. I'm thankful for your, your growing faith and your abounding love. I'm excited about the idea of God making you worthy of his calling. I, I am thrilled that, that, and it is appropriate for me to rejoice in all that God is doing in you and through you. But now as I come to the end of all of this, I have something I want to ask you. I want you to pray for me. I've often, uh, I'm often asked, well, how can I, how can, you know, Dr. Horn, how can I pray for you? How can I pray for the master's university? How can I pray for the seminary? And at the end of the day, these are the things that I pray for. These are the things I would love for you to pray for me. These are the things that we should pray for one another. So what should we pray for as we live out our faith the way these Thessalonians were living out theirs? Well, let's, let's look and see. I think there are four things here that uh, we can grasp, and, uh, and, and if we grasp them and hang on to them, can be very transformative in the way we think about one another and the way we pray for one another. So uh, if you have something to write with, you may just want to jot these down somewhere. Finally, brothers, pray for us, and here's the first thing. Pray for the powerful success of God's Word. Pray for the powerful success of God's Word. You see that in verse 1? Pray for us, and when you do, here's what I want you to pray. Pray that the Word of the Lord, the logos, that's the idea there, the message... Pray that the message from the Lord about the Lord would speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Pray that it would run freely. Pray that it would quickly overcome any obstacle in its midst. The word that Paul used here to describe this is the idea of a runner that is running a course. Many of you have seen races. Some of you have watched uh, track and field events, or some of you've watched the Olympic uh, events, and you've seen runners, and they are on a course that has been laid out for them, and there are obstacles in the course that they have to overcome. How many of you have ever watched uh, an amazing hurdler? Anybody ever watch an amazing hurdler? I mean, they get out there, and, and it looks so easy, doesn't it? I mean, they take off, and they are like the wind, and they come up to those hurdles, and it's like they don't even stop. They're just rolling right over those hurdles, and they overcome those hurdles. And then you think, you know what? I could do that. <laughs> and so in the dark of night, <clears throat> with nobody around, you sneak out to that course. And there are those hurdles. And the first thing you notice is they are a lot bigger than I remember them being, Right? So you back up to the starting block, and you and your mind, you have it all. I mean, you remember exactly what it looked like on TV, and you and your mind fire the starting gun, and off you go, and you hit the first hurdle, and what happens? It is a disaster. You know what Paul's saying? The Word of God needs to flow freely. It's, it, it, so when, when it is preached, pray, number one, that it will run freely, that it will quickly overcome any obstacle that is in its way. Do you think there are obstacles in a person's heart that the Word of God has to overcome? What do you think? And the answer is what? Yes, I mean, how many times have you sat in a sermon and thought, man, I am so glad pastor's preaching this. I wish so-and-so were here. Right? Or you're sitting next to somebody and you are resisting every urge to do this. 
You know what the Word of God has to do? It first of all has to overcome any obstacle you've had in your own heart. Pray that the Word of God would run freely. It's the idea of a runner. It's also the idea, it's used in certain contexts of water that is being held back. And then all of a sudden, whatever is restraining that body of water is removed, and that water does what? It just flows freely and rapidly, and it goes everywhere, and it brings its life-sustaining, life-giving effect to whatever it touches. And that's the idea. Paul says, pray that the Word of God would do that. Pray that it would run freely, and when it gets to where God is sending it, pray that it would be received appropriately for what it really is, the Word of God. That it would be believed for what it really says, the truth about God, and that it would be personally embraced by the hearers. And then he says, pray that this would happen just like it happened when the Word of God came to you. And we've already talked about that. You know, I've become convinced that in the world there are two kinds of men. And all, all of the women in this room can give testimony to this. There are Home Depot guys, Lowe's guys, and then there's everybody else, <laughs> right? There are guys where if there's like a little home project, they are like, this is a gift from God. Because it means I'm going to pull out my big tools and, and hopefully, if, if God is really gracious today, he's always good, but maybe gracious today, this project will involve a tool I don't own, <laughs> which will necessitate a trip to the portal to paradise, Home Depot or Lowe's, right? And then I'll go buy the tool, but while I'm buying the tool, I will spot other tools that could potentially be necessary for this job, and I'll buy those tools, and my dear wife cannot say a word because she's the one who called my attention to the project, (laughs) right? And then there are are other guys, and if there's a home project, your your wife's saying, honey, please don't don't touch it. (laughs) Can we just call the plumber? Please, I promise. You know, doesn't God want you to go study the word? And I happen to be in that category. <laughs> and so early on in our marriage, we, we bought a home that we had to fix up. And some of you have done this, right? You've done your fixer-uppers. And so in this home, there was, there was something that most people don't even know about. Most, most people under 30 have never seen this in a home. But it was wallpaper. How many of you remember wallpaper? <laughs> yeah? Yeah? So when you see wallpaper on the wall, what you are always afraid of is that little corner that's peeling up, right? If you're a Home Depot guy, that is like the best thing that could happen on a Saturday is you see wallpaper peeling up because, you know, you peel it off and hopefully underneath is a project that will take you to Lowe's or to Home Depot. And maybe, you know, maybe it'll even involve replacing drywall. And if you're really lucky, it could be wood rot. <laughs> now you got to tear the whole thing down to the studs, and now you got a project, right? And then you got guys like me, and we just lick the corner and kind of stick it down <laughs> and hope it stays. And if it doesn't, then you hang a picture there. <laughs> That's why if you go in certain homes, you got pictures way down here at the floor. <laughs> You know, I mean, that's a picture, isn't it, of sometimes how we handle the Word of God. The Word of God comes right into our life. And there's a piece of wallpaper. And the Spirit of God is saying, I want to do something in your life. And what we want to do is we want to lick it. 
and push it down. And Paul says, now, when you think about the preaching of God's word week by week, when you think about the ministry of God's word in your own life, as you listen to it, as you read it, as you sing it, as you pray it together, pray that that will not happen. Pray that the word of God would have free course in your life. That's the first thing Paul prays for. Now, notice the second thing. When the word of God begins to do its work, what happens? There are enemies that come against the work that the word is doing. And so the second thing that Paul asks prayer for is protection as the word does its work. Notice how he says this in verse 2, and that we may be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful. In other words, God will take care of us. He will establish you and guard you against who? The evil one. Behind all of this is an evil being, an ancient enemy of God, who is determined to undo whatever word, whatever the word is doing and working out in your life. I mean, think of it this way. I, I, I tend to think in pictures, so let me give you an illustration. If you go to a construction site, and you labor in that construction site, and you build and build and build, and then the weekend comes, and you have to go home for two days, and there is an enemy who spends the next two days undoing everything that you built. You come back on Monday morning, and the wall that you built is, is gone, and the wall that you put up is on its side, or the roof that you, you put in play has been torn down, and all of a sudden, you begin to realize spiritually, The word does its work, but there's an enemy who's going to use people and circumstances and all kinds of things to undo that work that the word has been doing. And Paul says, now you pray, number one, for the word to do its work, that it would run speedily. But number two, pray for protection as that word does its work. I mean, we're living in a little bit of that here, aren't we, as an individual local church where we've seen people rise up against the word and the work that it is doing? And, And how many of you could give testimony over the last however many weeks now that that there has been an unusual way in which the word has been at work in your life? And there's been an unusual thing that's been going on. Your sense of what God is calling you to do has been heightened as you have experienced and seen the boldness and the courage of the elders in this congregation who are standing for the word. And all of a sudden, that word is doing its work. And, 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 and here comes now an enemy to stand against all of that. And in our day and age, it could be what's going on now, but in every day and in every age and in every circumstance of your life, go forward 10 years, go forward 20 years, you're going to find that whenever the word begins to do a deep work in your life, there's going to be an opposition to that. And the Apostle Paul is saying, pray not just for the success of God's word, pray pray for protection as the word does its work. And that brings us to the third thing. The word of God that is at work in you is revealing something to you. It's not just... Uh, It's not just informing you. The Word of God is shaping you, and it's revealing something to you. And what it is revealing to you is the will of God. The Word of God that you are studying and hearing is a word that is transforming you, and it is showing you what God is calling you to do and to be. And so the third thing Paul prays for is not just for the powerful success of the Word, and protection while the word does its work, but he prays that God would grant personal obedience to the will of God that is now being revealed by that word. Look at verse 3. 
or verse 4. We have confidence in the Lord about you that you are doing and will do the things that we command. You say, well, what a wonderful church this was. I mean, it was an early church. The gospel came. The words at work. Wait a minute. First Thessalonians, Paul says, now look, I need to write you because you have been hearing that, that something we didn't say is true. We told you to wait confidently for the Lord. And some of you have already started to believe that he's already come and you missed it. So we have to correct you. And by the way, when we get to 2 Thessalonians, I have a really hard thing I'm about to say to you. There is one of your members who have become so entrenched in his own way of thinking about the second coming that he's refusing to listen to us about working. And you're going to have to withdraw fellowship for him. And I'm praying that when the hard things about God's word come to bear, that you will obey. That's an amazing thing. Pray for the success of God's word. Pray for protection as the word does its work, right? Pray not just for that, for for personal obedience to the word, but what's going to fuel all of that? What's going to bring all of that to bear in our life? And Paul says, may the Lord direct your hearts to the love of God and to the steadfastness of Christ. Pray that you will progress in the knowledge of God. I mean, think about the love of God. This is God's love for you. God's deep love for you that is transforming in nature. Pray that God will grant you an understanding of that love. And then pray for the evidence of that love, for the persistence of Jesus Christ in your life. So what a wonderful prayer that we have here before us. And we're thankful to God for that prayer. And let's pray, shall we, as we end our time, that God will help us. I know we're very close to uh, our time, so I want to make sure we have time for fellowship and you get time to where you go. Let's pray that God will help us. Lord, thank you for your good grace to us. Lord, I pray that you would help us, guide us, and direct us now. In Jesus' name, amen.